Welcome to the Bucket Problem episode three, brought to you by Homefield Apparel. I am Ace Ambender. I'm really excited to bring you today's show. We have our very first guest appearance on the Bucket Problem. Alex Kirshner and I will be discussing name, image, and likeness, how it impacts the college football landscape, and also how it may impact Michigan more specifically. After that, we're going to get to your mailbag questions with Alex Cook and Connor Southard. Without further ado, let's get to the interview with Alex Kirshner on name, image, and likeness. We are happy to welcome in our very first ever guest on the Bucket Problem podcast. Today we welcome Alex Kirshner of Split Zone Duo, The Moon Crew, uh, Sinful Seven, some contributions to Slate. Uh, Alex, is there anything I've missed there? You know, that's a pretty pretty damn good summary. I don't usually get that good a summary. I wear too many hats and uh, it's easy for even me to forget a few of them from time to time. So I'm excited to be here. First guest. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I feel like, uh, especially with the name, image, and likeness stuff that we are about to dive into and discuss, that uh, there were a few better people to have on than, than somebody who covers uh, college football from, I would say, a, a more big picture perspective, uh, definitely covering the national scene and also looking at the way that college athletics and college football works in a way uh, that we don't always dive into while being more focused on specific programs. So I'm I'm excited to get into this name, image, and likeness stuff, also in part because it is really hard to keep track of everything. So the first thing I want to ask is if you can just kind of take us through the basics of like, what does name, image, and likeness kind of allow athletes to do? What doesn't this allow? We'll start there because that, that's probably enough for one question. Sure. So the NCAA, as you'll be familiar with, was very backed into a corner uh, at the end of June because 20-some states had passed laws that said, in essence, that the NCAA's rule prohibiting athletes from getting paid for their name, image, and likeness were illegal. They more or less put the NCAA at gunpoint and forced the NCAA to adopt what Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, is calling an interim name, image, and likeness policy. And the interim policy really doesn't do much other than say that if you follow a state law, you should just follow that law and do what's allowed in your state. Uh, And if you're in a state that hasn't passed an NIL law, then you can do this same type of thing and we won't suspend you, we won't take away your eligibility. It's a huge L for the NCAA because they had been hoping that Congress would come in with a national NIL law that I think they wanted to be more restrictive than a bevy of these state laws. And they didn't get that because uh, the NCAA has not gotten much of anything that it's wanted when it's gone to Congress or or Washington, D.C. of late. So what's allowed really varies by state, but I think the general vibe that – would accurately describe the way that this is working in most states is that college athletes can do endorsements and autograph signings and commercials and things of that nature uh, with some guardrails, as the schools would call them. You know, they can't do 
in most cases, gambling-related advertising, sponsorships. They can't do drugs and alcohol. They can't do adult entertainment. So they're, they're still behind the rest of us in terms of uh, the full range of economic freedom that you have to make money off your name. But it is a new world in college athletics. There's no question. And even with some of these restrictions in place, another one is that uh, in, in most places you can't advertise like with the school's logo, name, or mark involved in your endorsement. Even so, it's it's a new a new era for sure. I mean, this is stuff that has never been out in the open before in college athletics, and and now it is, and I don't think that will change. Absolutely, and it's uh, it's definitely been. I mean, we with how quickly it came into place, and just the different laws in each of these different states, and the fact that not all of them have these laws yet. It it has been kind of. Uh, a little wild westy um it feels like and and one of the things is just like so first of all there are obviously differences between these state laws and then there's a governing body in the NCAA that doesn't actually have any legal power but is controlling these i don't know recommendations more than i mean they they have some enforcement powers so like how does like how do you see enforcement taking shape from here and how do you see the NCAA, uh, like, do, are they just, like you said, kind of just hoping that Congress comes along and eventually makes something consistent across all these states? Or is there eventually going to be something a little bit more cohesive from them when they're not kind of scrambling to recover from getting shut out by uh, the Supreme Court? Right now, I think that a lot of this is in the hands of university compliance departments, and the NCAA, even more than usual, I think, has delegated out the task of talking to athletes and trying to feel out whether things are legal, whether they are uh, comfortable enough for schools themselves to be okay with them. I don't think that you're going to see very many cases at all in the coming months, at least, of the NCAA personally from Indianapolis coming and cracking down on name, image, and likeness deals that it doesn't like. They have very little interest, I think, in taking the PR lashing that would, would come with that if that was the, the course that they chose. But for the long run, yeah, I think what the NCAA would very much like is for Congress to pass a law that mirrors maybe the most restrictive or is even more restrictive than the most restrictive state law on this front. That has been the barely veiled effort that Emmert has made for over a year now. And the argument that he's made, which I think on its face makes some sense, is that it doesn't make a lot of sense for college sports to be governed by a bunch of different rules in different places. And sure, it doesn't. But uh, whose fault is that, Mark? You know, who, who <laughs> let it get to this point? Um, we're all kind of the hot dog meme where the guy's looking around trying to find out who did this. It's completely the NCAA's fault. And, you know, I, I don't think that Certainly in this Congress, any help is forthcoming because I don't think that Democrats in Congress are going to do anything uh, that would help the NCAA restrict player economic power uh, any more than they already do. And even if Republicans uh, retake both chambers of Congress, I'm not certain how much appetite there is to help the NCAA that much because this is, has proven to be a weirdly bipartisan issue. But uh, I do think that that would be the best hope for the NCAA would be a Republican Congress that might work with them a little bit more. Yeah, although the uh, 
the quotes from the Supreme Court hearing certainly didn't give a lot of hope to the NCAA that uh, that any party would really get behind them. No, no. Yeah, that that was that was rough for them. So, kind of moving down to the program level or the school level, um, kind of what level of school and program do you see kind of benefiting the most from NIL? Is this something where we're going to see kind of the gap between power programs and the rest of the world? Are we seeing that gap increase or is this kind of just bringing the status quo above board? You know, I don't know that it has to be stratified like the power five schools are going to do great with this and everybody else is going to do poorly with it. I think that for one thing, as far as a recruiting advantage, it would be hard for things to get any more bifurcated than they are right now. You know, you already have a situation where a handful of schools get the preponderance of the best football recruits, and this is true certainly in basketball, and I think in every NCAA sport, even though only a couple of sports, football and the two basketballs, maybe baseball, really have like robust national recruiting coverage that gets a lot of attention. But I, I, I suspect that the schools that do well with this are going to be the schools that lean into it and are smart about it, whether that's a Mac school or a D2 school or Michigan. I think that if you lean in and you're recruiting to say, hey, look, we're going to help you um, take control of your own brand, like, you know, look at this, look at uh, all of the, the athletes in our programs right now who have already been able to strike up name, image, and likeness deals. Uh, and then look, it's not just the quarterback, it's not just the point guard on the men's basketball team. I think those are the schools, no, no matter the level, that are going to get some recruiting bounce from this. I, you know, I, I sort of doubt that it's going to fundamentally alter many schools' recruiting outlook because it turns out that's hard to do. And there have been very few things that have changed programs' places in the world. But I think there's opportunity for everyone. I think there's opportunity for Toledo, just just in the same way that I think there's opportunity for Michigan uh, if you only lean into it smartly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there's definitely an opportunity with NIL for less traditionally power programs to be able to go like, hey, you can come here and be the face of our program instead of just another guy mm -hmm. uh, on Alabama or whatever. And, or, you know, maybe not Alabama, Toledo might be an unfair comparison, but, you know, another yeah. guy at a Big Ten school or something like that and go, you know, hey, like, if you're the face of the program here, there's probably more opportunity for you than being, you know, even a starter, but, you know, just not one of the more prominent ones. I agree. I don't think there's any world in which – I'm going to keep using the Toledo example because uh, that's a suburb of Ann Arbor, obviously, and we <laughs> like to we, we like to keep it local. But, like, there's not any world ever in which Toledo is going to get a running back that Alabama legitimately wants. It's not going to happen. Fine. We understand that. But um, I think that even with that being the case, I think that NIL creates an opportunity maybe for a program – with Toledo's stature, you know, a, a Mac school or a lower tier FBS school uh, to maybe beat out a lower tier power five school. If it's like, Hey, you know, well, you can come and play right away here instead of be the number four running back at Iowa state or what have you post Matt Campbell, when Iowa state goes back to being what Iowa state has previously been. Um, and maybe, you know, the, if you can make a credible pitch that there's going to be some NIL money for you at the end of that rainbow, 
you could win some recruiting battles against some schools that you typically wouldn't. I don't think, I just don't think that it will fundamentally turn recruiting on its head because there's nothing that is going to get the schools from the very bottom all the way up to the very top. It doesn't, as you know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of attempts to alter the way recruiting works over uh, the last, I don't know, century plus, and generally the same schools keep coming out on top. I'm also going to attempt to not take your Matt Campbell bait there and stay on topic. 2022 Michigan Wolverines head coach Matt Campbell, is that who you're talking about? That, that, that's, that's exactly what we're going for here. Okay, yeah. So Michigan has had an example recently of how these changes can benefit both players and schools uh, because Hunter Dickinson came back to Michigan after considering the NBA draft, getting his feedback. And one of the things he cited as a reason he came back was that he could profit off of his likeness. And that made a difficult decision a little bit easier because you're comparing, you know, second round money for a year to, the opportunity to be the face of a major program and, and mm-hmm. be, you know, he's already been an all American, so he, he should be a very prominent. I, I expect to see his face around Ann Arbor a little bit in the, in the coming months, but there's also this interesting aspect of like, it's not just the stars that are necessarily benefiting from this, but the athletes who are like TikTok stars. And Michigan has one of those in Adrian Nunez uh, on their bench in basketball. So um, for individual players, what like what type of opportunities does this open up for them? And who do you see really benefiting? Because it seems like it's maybe a much wider swath of players than and players in different sports than t- people would have necessarily anticipated. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that I think quickly the idea of which athlete does the best under NIL for a lot of people will sort of turn out to be wrong. I mean, we saw it on the very first day, two twins, the Cavender twins on Fresno State's women's basketball team who have between them, I think pushing a million followers between Instagram and TikTok. uh, They made a deal with Boost Mobile, which I assume was more lucrative than, you know, a lot of deals that athletes are going to make with with local businesses. So for Hunter Dickinson or for, you know, the quarterback of the football team or for, you know, that kind of classic uh, golden boy athlete who who meets all the stereotypes of, uh, you know, like you'd see in Friday Night Lights and the car dealership would try to give him a free car or something like that. Those athletes will have opportunities for sure. And I think that any opportunity, any cash you can put in your pocket, especially as a college kid, is pretty valuable. But the the big money, the athletes who are going to really, really make it certainly are going to be the ones who have uh, much bigger social media followings than uh, than you or me. You know, these are athletes who have been really good at TikTok, really good at Instagram, maybe in some cases really good at Twitter, though I think mostly Instagram and TikTok probably for the time being. And they're going to make money. I mean, they're going to make five to six figures worth of money uh, in some cases. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point you had a million-dollar NIL athlete, honestly, in, in college sports, and you're not going to get there by uh, being beloved in a small college town and going and signing autographs at the dealership. That stereotypical thing that we all talked about, NIL would look like this, that's that's not going to be it. It's going to be uh, in the same way as media deals are, really. I mean, it, it comes down to your audience size and if you can efficiently push things out uh, to people's phones. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to that, this is advertising. So it is all about your reach. And 
I, I think people might be surprised at who has the most reach among college athletes because other than the you know maybe your Zion Williamson type players it's uh it's not necessarily who you think and it's uh, especially in TikTok a world that I just do not know and I'm not familiar with at all and I imagine that is the case for a great number of people following the uh, college athletics and listening to this podcast and beyond so I think we'll all be learning quite a lot about some things we didn't necessarily know about as this uh, as this moves forward. I think so. I think that the the people who I trust least in evaluating NIL are the people who speak with certainty about what it's going to look like and what it's going to mean for college sports. Because, like, let's be honest, you don't know. Like, this is a market that has not been allowed to exist for the entire history of college sports, or at least the modern history of college sports. And we can make educated guesses until we're blue in the face, and I certainly have done that. But if you act like you know, then that's a red flag because you can't you can't know something that has really no exact uh, modern analog and, and think with any confidence that that's what it's going to be. Yeah, we're moving into uncharted waters and – uh, there's no other sporting organization or really any sort of business in the world like the NCAA, as the Supreme Court pointed out uh, quite emphatically. Uh, so there, there isn't really a, anything even close to a one-to-one -one comparison you can make to kind of use as an example. And, uh, you know, I'm working with uh, my liberal arts history degree background. That's always my, uh, my go-to. So uh, when we don't have that, uh, I think it is best to kind of throw up your hands and go, I, I don't know. And along those lines, have there been any major surprises to you in how NIL has been put into action so far? And what do you see, especially with how quickly this is rolled out? Are there like some uh, potential pitfalls that you've seen already? Because I've certainly noticed a few uh, potentially problematic things pop up. Yeah, I haven't been really surprised by anything. I think that it was inevitable that like Barstool would try to get very involved and, you know, that is what it is. I certainly wouldn't advise college athletes to tie their boat to companies that might create problems for them in other ways. But I think the, the pitfall that I think of most um, sort of borders on, like it might make it sound like I don't think college athletes are smart, which... I actually don't think college students, including me when I was in college, I don't think any of us were smart when we were in college. Um, totally agree. <laughs> I have I have real questions about, uh, you know, is someone going to tell a player who signs a really big NIL deal that when you're a contractor, uh, you're supposed to put away money to pay taxes at the end of the year? I didn't know that until I was a freelancer at like 25, 26. You know, you're used to most college students, if they've had jobs, it's a job where you're on a w-2 tax form and a little bit is withheld from your paycheck and you don't really have to think about it you do your taxes at the end of the year or your mom and dad do or you do it with TurboTax or whatever and it's very easy um now if you you know if you're one of the college athletes who's fortunate to sign a ten thousand dollar nil deal and that's really all the money you have because a lot of college students don't have any more money uh and then you spend it all uh and then at the end of the year uh uncle sam's like hey i'd, I'd like two thousand dollars please from that um i could have imagined myself getting twisted up in knots over that if I were in this position in college. So I hope that schools are like flagging that for, for athletes. It's not at all to make them sound like they don't know what they're doing. The athletes, it's just like 
this is a thing that a lot of adults have no idea about, and I don't think I did until it became relevant to me. So I do hope that that is something that they are on top of. Yeah, there are plenty of people well out of college who get screwed over by contract language and whatever. And that's that's the other thing with this that, I mean, it seems right now like a lot of these offers are just kind of coming in to like, you know, players' Instagram DMs or whatever, and they're signing these deals or agreeing to these deals without much oversight. And that's something I really worry about is just, you know, I I can't imagine all these players with how quickly these things are popping up are running these whatever these contracts or invoices are by compliance or definitely not like a a lawyer like they're not going to pay for that so at least in most cases so I you just wonder are players being taken advantage of because this is all of a sudden mm-hmm. uh, a very unregulated territory with oh, yeah. little precedent yeah. and not a lot of time for them to be prepared for it. Oh, yeah. And and I have a lot of questions about the companies that have positioned themselves directly between athletes and their checks. And this is not I don't know this yet. And I, so this will sound like I'm trying to cast aspersions for no reason. But look, like Open Doors and Influencer, but they spell it without vowels because you're not allowed to have vowels and startup names anymore, I guess. These companies that these are the big two in the space that are sort of promising to facilitate deals for athletes and to work with schools to track these things. Maybe they provide a lot of value and do not take advantage of athletes at all. We're going to see. Um, but anytime you have like a check cashing company basically getting into a territory, you know, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart under capitalism, I don't think. So we'll have to keep our eyes on a lot of different players, not just schools and athletes, but also kind of these middlemen who are in the market to see exactly what role they play uh, and if they are providing value. Absolutely. I mean, the NCAA has never been short on uh, shady characters uh, looming around, so don't think that is going to change anytime soon. To bring this back around to Michigan a little bit, because I I know you're – I mean, we've talked a little bit about how Michigan – operates and you're familiar with uh you know as a as a graduate of a big 10 school (laughs) um such as it is uh you're you're familiar with uh certain aspects of the michigan kind of way of going about things so i think for a lot of michigan fans the belief has been that okay once this all gets brought above board Michigan's really going to benefit because they've always kind of positioned themselves as we do these things the right way. We're doing this more above board than a lot of schools. And so the more legal this is, the better Michigan, particularly in football, can be. But it also, like, I'm seeing stuff like, okay, like the University of Miami has a deal with an MMA gym that's just giving them, you know, money to all their football players. And is that the kind of deal that Michigan would sign or would they avoid that because of the optics, I'd kind of lean towards the latter. So, it, I mean, you mentioned earlier that like the, I think you said that the schools you see succeeding are the ones that really do this the best um, and fully lean into it. Do you see maybe some problems with Michigan in terms of just the willingness to lean into it? Uh, like say Ohio state is definitely going to. Yes. Fair answer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, like, I, look, 
there there are programs in college football that uh, tread more cautiously, and everyone who listens to this podcast knows even better than I do that Michigan is one of those programs that treads very cautiously, and sometimes that works out well, and sometimes it can hold a team back. I think that you know it's worked fairly well for Michigan in in at least in an on field context a lot of different times throughout its history. I mean, you know, like for obvious reasons right now, I'm loath to really discuss old Michigan football because of everything that we learned that was happening off the field at that time. Mm -hmm. But they got good at football by not really doing it. They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel when they were good at football. You know, like there's, there've been a lot of innovative offenses that have tried to change a lot of things. And that wasn't really Michigan. They just were bigger and tougher and they played a conservative kind of style of football and it worked very well for them. So that works. And, you know, in other areas, in other arenas, maybe you let innovation pass you by. And that could be a case for some schools in NIL. It would kind of fit with Michigan's ethos if they were a little cautious there. So we'll see. That was a, a very diplomatic way of putting that in the last part. I appreciate that. This definitely doesn't feel like the like end point for athlete labor rights. It's it's a stopgap, uh, if, we're, if we're being frank. So once... Uh, everyone kind of gets a handle on NIL and where it's going. Where do you see this going? Like, what's the next step uh, in kind of the athlete labor right movement? Is it getting paid directly by the schools? Is it opening up image and likeness further? The you know what what's kind of the next big avenue? You know, I I suspect that it's either judicial or congressional. I, I think that the the thing that is kind of obviously sitting there with the door wide open is for another lawsuit that challenges the NCAA, not just like the Austin case did over education-related benefits, but that gets into revenue sharing, uh, that gets into the NCAA's rules prohibiting athletes from taking any share of, of school revenues. I think that you know the nine nothing loss, the nature of like Brett Kavanaugh's which like look man when you're right you're right when you're right mm -hmm. you're right um and Brett Kavanaugh was right uh on this um you know taking on the NCAA it didn't really suggest that if another case came before the justices and, and lower courts obviously can kind of take their cues from the Supreme Court that the NCAA would get a very sympathetic reception to its kind of let us do antitrust violations whenever we want arguments that it made before the Supreme Court. So I think you could see some movement there um, on revenue sharing at some point. The other thing that's kind of on the table, and I was talking to a sports lawyer who thinks that this might actually pass in like the next five or 10 years, is a bill that would kind of establish that if college athletes wanted to, they could unionize. So we've never had a union in college athletics. Northwestern got kind of close in 2015 uh, before the NLRB stepped in and said, nope, can't do that. I think that there would be, there will be some momentum in, you know, pretty high up democratic political circles to pass a law that affirms that college athletes have that right, which would then be subject to a lot of challenges because they are not technically employees at this time, even though they kind of function a lot like employees. And I think it would be a huge fight, but I think it might pass and then if that passed, then, you know, you never know if, if a group of athletes, particularly in, in football, might take advantage of that bargaining power uh, and go ahead and try to form a union. I think it's going to take a long time. I think this is all, like all progress in college sports, going to be slow and scattershot and kind of a mess. But I do think there's a next frontier, and I think eventually we'll get there. 
Yeah, it it does feel like things kind of lurch forward after periods of kind of very little happening when public opinion or I guess uh, opinion of those in power kind of reaches a tipping point. And it certainly feels like we've at least reached a certain uh, like I have my impression now I I will admit to being in sort of a bubble in terms of who I follow on Twitter and following a lot of uh, college football reporters who have long been in support of this. But it does seem like in general, the opinion has shifted from at, at the very least being either ambivalent about players being paid or in, with a lot of fans being against it and wanting to uphold amateurism to mm-hmm. now uh, it seems like there's been a really significant shift towards these these players at the very least deserve uh, likeness rights and probably more than that. Yeah, I think that the NCAA has sort of miscalculated here. Uh, that's probably the understatement of the century <laughs> because, you know, fighting on name, image, and likeness, honestly, to people who, who don't really follow college sports all the time, I think it just makes them look bad because, you know, if, if you ever explain this to someone who is outside the college sports ecosystem and you know you start by explaining that they make all this money for these schools and they're not paid then you're like oh well that's pretty pretty messed up but you know that doesn't necessarily sound too different than what you see in a lot of the world and and in a lot of the american economy uh on on different scales but if you're then like oh yeah and they're not even allowed to like do tv commercials even though they have all these fans like someone will just be like what the hell is that like that is such a weird system um how do they get away with that how is that even possible and it made the NCAA very easy, rightfully, to villainize. And, you know, I think that if they have given ground on NIL a bit earlier, knowing where it was obviously going, and it was obviously going this way to everyone except NCAA leadership, you know, they might have been able to stave off, A, the embarrassment at the Supreme Court and the setting of some precedent at the Supreme Court that might hurt them, but also might have been able to kind of keep broader non-college sports public opinion from turning so sharply against them. And they just didn't do that because they're not, that good at this yeah i think it's safe to say that mark emmert and the ncaa could have done a significantly better job of reading the room and probably could have earned some concessions by by doing so and instead like you said very much backed themselves into a corner on on a somewhat lighter note um i've already mentioned the miami mma gym so i hopefully did not take your answer to this but uh of the things you've seen so far, do you have like a favorite player promotion that has, that has popped up so far? You know, I don't know if I have a favorite though. The U is of course back, but I think it's been good to see how name, image, and likeness has very clearly not been limited to football players or men's basketball players. Uh, it hasn't been limited to male athletes in general. It hasn't been limited to Power Five schools. I think the very first deal was a Jackson State football player uh, with a, a hair care pro- a hair care product. So I am pretty happy, I guess, just to see the broad breadth of deals and, and athletes who have had a chance to get them because there were a lot of hucksters who were saying for years that this was only going to be for a very specific type of athlete. And while we can't reach a ton of conclusions about how this will ultimately go, I think we can very clearly reach a conclusion already that those people were full of shit. And it's nice when you can get that out of the way early. Yes, it, it has been pleasant to see this uh, dispel a lot of the kind of straw man arguments that were put up uh, about 
how this would work. Um, even though we're still in the early stages, this is clearly not a thing that just benefits a very, very small percentage of the athletes. This is this is something that has opened things up for a lot of people, especially since, I mean, these are, people tend to narrow this down to these these people are just athletes. But, uh, you know, as we're, we're seeing with, you know, some of the social media, uh, college, like, oriented college athletes getting NIL deals, these, uh, I don't want to call them kids because they're not, they're not really kids, but these college students have, uh, they have skills and talents and plenty of stuff that, that also falls outside of the sporting purview. And it's been, uh, I would say, criminal for them to not be able to make money on, I mean, you know, we had the the Colorado wide receiver who was also an Olympic skier, and uh, he couldn't get endorsements for the skiing side of things, which is pretty critical for you know being able to compete in that sport. Mm-hmm. But even stuff like you know if if an athlete is an artist, or uh, I mean, there's so many different things that I mean, especially with kind of the online entrepreneurism that that we see now. I mean, I'm we're recording we both have our our kind of own independent podcasts uh, that we have uh, we're we're part of this too like to cut to cut athletes off from that solely because they're participating in a sport at the college level never made sense and i'm i'm really happy to see that go away because this isn't just about being able to profit off of your ability to play sports it's it, it can go well beyond that no doubt. I think that it makes college sports ever so slightly more morally palatable. And it's always good when we can do that. Yes, especially when we're uh, consuming college football. Um, so before I let Alex go, and this has been a phenomenal conversation about a topic that uh, I think we're all still getting a handle on. First of all, listen to Split Zone Doe. It's phenomenal. Alex and RJ and their uh, frequent special guest, Stephen Godfrey, do a fantastic job of covering the the college football landscape. You can also find them on Moon Crew, um, and you can get the uh, Sinful 7 ebook, which is a really fun read that provides a lot of background into a lot of this stuff, uh, or at least the lead up to it. But I also... Uh, you know, I've, I've listened to Split Zone Duo a few times, and uh, I was aware that uh, we share a sponsor. We do. We do. I figured we'd do a, a, a little bit of a live ad read here for Homefield. And our shtick so far has been harassing uh, our, our friend Connor into releasing new products. My demand of late has been that we, we have seen over the last couple of weeks with the Minnesota and Wisconsin Big News Saturday drops some absolutely spectacular hockey specific shirts Mm -hmm. michigan has a legendarily good hockey program right up there with minnesota and wisconsin and yet there is not a michigan hockey shirt available on homefieldapparel.com so we are very kindly asking connor before we turn this into a harassment campaign to consider michigan hockey for the next U of M refresh that uh, we sure hope is coming. Alex, do yeah. you have any any uh, new product demands? I know. I mean, you've got you got a pit background, you got a Maryland background. You, you got some directions to go here. Yeah, I mean, both Pitt and Maryland have club hockey teams. I had friends who played for both of them, so it's pretty disappointing that Homefield has not seen fit to release Pitt or Maryland club hockey shirts. 
you know, like at some point you start to you start to wonder uh, if Connor really cares about club hockey uh, at Maryland and Pitt specifically. I mean, I I don't know. Is he just a poser when he talks about how much he loves Pitt and Maryland club hockey? I, I don't know. This this is disappointing to hear about Connor, and and we really hope that he can address this and and turn this around. So while you cannot yet get Michigan varsity hockey or Pitt or Maryland club hockey gear from Homefield Apparel, there are a wide array of schools and sports that you can get from them. Uh, various mascots on shirts, sweatshirts, crew necks. Um, Unfortunately, not on the joggers anymore, but those joggers are incredibly comfortable. And you can use the promo code BUCKETPROBLEM for 15% off your first order from Homefield. They're at homefieldapparel.com. All right, we welcome in not Homefield Connor, but uh, I won't call you CIA Connor, um, Connor Southern and and Alex Cook. We're, we're going to... Take uh, a few of your mailbag questions. Thank you to to everybody who sent those in. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of jump off uh, what we just just heard discussed between me and Alex Kirshner. In particular, I want to discuss his answer and our answer about whether Michigan might, let's say, get in its own way about name, image, and likeness because they will find certain things uh, rather unseemly uh, compared to other schools and maybe in that way fail to to take advantage of some things. At the same time, you know, this is a Jordan school in a town with a lot of small businesses that are aching to give players money. I can see how Michigan also could do really well with this. So I wanted to throw it to you guys Connor, I'll I'll start with you. What did you think of Kirsch's opinion that, I mean, he just answered basically yes to that question, that, you know, and then added, added a longer answer, but Michigan might not take advantage of name, image, and likeness in a, in a pretty frustrating way because uh, they'll see it as sort of beneath them. Yeah, I do admit that it worries me. I, I think what really gets to me and I will out myself here so you guys can get mad at me. Everyone listening to this, you can get mad at me because I am a Duke alumnus. And so I bring that perspective <laughs> um, to this conversation. But I think that's quite relevant here, which is that there are times, and you see this in the fan base, and you see it at least implicitly with the institution itself. There are times when it seems like Michigan believes it's the only school that truly combines elite academics and elite sports. And this is a very strange belief since the team that wins the Director's Cup every year is Stanford. Uh, I guess they lost to Texas this year. So, you know, hook them horns. Uh, but, you know, Stanford wins almost every year. Also, other, like, you know, Michigan competes against schools such as Notre Dame or I have news for you. Wisconsin is a very good public institution as well. Duke, notably in basketball. All of which is to say... I. When you see things like Michigan tripping over itself with transfers for football players, it looks incredibly amateurish and almost like an intentional self-sabotage to prove to prove some kind of, I don't know, reserved waspy point about honor or something. It's very confused and it suffuses a lot of things to at least some extent. And I don't think it's unfair to worry that a guy like you know Mark Schlissel, much derided in Michigan sports circles, who clearly does not care about sports, and seems actively antagonistic, almost like he's like a Harvard president from 1908, you know, mad about, you know, kids playing football. 
I think it's a worry, and I, I want to see Michigan prove me wrong and all that. You, you at least aren't going to find many people that would uh, defenseless little about many things right now. So, and and certainly regarding his handling of the athletic department and kind of I don't know with him mostly keeping it at arm's length. I actually hadn't thought much about the uh, university president aspect of this, but it'll be interesting to see the interplay between him and the board of trustees certainly has some, some Michigan sports fans. So uh, on both sides. So I wonder how, how much influence kind of the, the university at large will have. I, I tend to think it's going to be more of an athletic department specific issue in terms of, I, I think they're going to have a lot of autonomy to handle this as long as there isn't anything that really raises a red flag from the university. And, you know, if a, uh, if a player started in OnlyFans or something like that, uh, then then we might get, uh, uh, you know, uh, the university intervening. But, it, you know, it, up to something like that happening, I, I'm not sure even Mark Schlissel, I, I mean, I think he just doesn't want to deal with it. So as long as it's not a huge problem, I don't think he's going to want to step in and uh, probably the same with the Board of Trustees. But I do fear the athletic department's attitude a little bit. See, I, I kind of want to jump in and disagree with you guys, although I do think Connor has a point about you know Michigan exceptionalism and kind of that sublimated WASP psychology. I look at a player like, say, Denard Robinson, um, who could have made a lot of money during his time in Ann Arbor. I, I don't think that the athletic department or the football program is going to stand in the way of any of this. Like, I don't know that they'll maybe execute the NIL stuff as well as, say, Miami, which has already partnered with, what is it, an MMA gym? down there mm-hmm. American top team baby yeah to give all their players money I don't I don't think Michigan will be doing any of that but I, you know this is something that you know as has been discussed it's kind of uncharted territory but I gotta think that this new frontier of paying players openly will actually advantage Michigan um, as a as a well-resourced program relative to say other schools in the Big Ten Michigan State um, I think the amount of brand exposure that Michigan players could potentially get, like, say, Denard, whose earning potential was never higher than it was when he was a, a star player at Michigan, or even, say, Jabril Peppers, Devin Bush, you know, there have been, you know, if there's a star quarterback, like J.J. McCarthy could potentially make a lot of money if he pans out as well as people hope he will. And yeah, I you know, Michigan, Jim Harbaugh, I don't think he's naive to the fact that other programs will be using this. And I, I kind of see it as a, a front of, you know, competition in recruiting, competition in, say, the transfer portal or player retention, whatever it is. Um, I, I don't think Michigan's institutional sensibilities will be a huge obstacle in terms of like, compared to the rest of the Big Ten, I think Michigan's starters, star players can make a good, a good amount of money. I just wanted to jump in and say two things. Number one, I really hope you guys are right. I'm presenting a more pessimistic view than I perhaps literally think is true. I, I, it just shows frustration with other things. The transfer thing is really just embarrassing, honestly. And I, I think, yeah, like, like to Alex's point, I think we're already seeing, I mean, Dax Hill already got a big deal, right? So um, I'm not too worried. I do think that Michigan as an institution needs to be called out on all of this as much as possible, especially Schlissel. Can they please find a president who likes football? 
or at least doesn't hate it. Uh, that'd be nice. And also uh, is able to handle a, a whole lot of other things much better than Mark Schlissel. That'd be cool. Also to Alex's point, I, I think one thing that Jim Harbaugh, we, we've kind of let it get lost in some of the other recruiting issues that have come up and the on-field uh, lack of performance. But he has been very willing to push the envelope on the recruiting front. And I think... I don't think Ward Manuel is going to hold him back on that as long as, uh, again, nothing is wildly out of line with, I don't know, what uh, the just basic values of a public university, most likely. So hopefully they will uh, be pretty willing to allow players to work within the wider confines of what's allowed to to be able to fully maximize their potential. And also, set, I mean, I think a lot of, programs are going to be very proactive in the way that they're setting this up. I mean, we've already seen it with, uh, you know, NILSU and stuff like that. So I I, I think Michigan, I, I possibly attitude-wise, they'll be actually maybe more in the right place than I've been considering for a lot of this podcast. Organization-wise is maybe where the worry comes from, at least with Jim Harbaugh right now. But that's something that you know, if Jim Harbaugh is no longer the coach in a year or two, uh, that that comes down to who they bring in. And I, I would think that the direction Michigan would go post-Harbaugh would probably be more of a, we have to be willing to do more, or at least I'd hope that would be the direction that they go in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know we if, can help. <laughs> Harbaugh, yeah, if Harbaugh being here, I don't think we'll maybe be able to have the same NIL capabilities as, say, an Ohio State or even a Georgia who knows if that could change potentially down the road. But yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I, I got to think that this new rule benefits Michigan on the whole. That seems fair. All right, we will we will move on to the bailbag questions that actually came from listeners. Uh, <laughs> so we'll start with uh, at Dam Glasgow, who is uh, quite possibly the brother of uh, our absent co-host this week. What do you think Michigan's record will be through four games this season? I think it has to be 4-0 if they want to make legitimate strides this year. Also, what is the most critical aspect on offense and defense to make this happen? I think it's deep passing game and interior defensive line play. Connor, I will throw this to you first. Yeah, so first of all, thank you for that question. You know, we don't know who this user is, but uh, (laughs) he has some good takes. Maybe we should have him on the pod. (laughs) I, I actually, so this is really, really well formulated. It's very concrete. Um, I do think Michigan has a very good chance to be 4-0, and I agree that if they're not, it's a serious problem. Losing to Washington would not be, like, totally inexcusable because that's at least a team with a lot of NFL talent. But it's at home. Washington is not supposed to be that good this year. And if Michigan can't defend their house in that early game, we're in for trouble. So I think the 4-0 thing, absolutely true. I think if Michigan is 4-0, you'll see a lot of hype. The hype cycle might get out of control, actually. <laughs> you know, it'll be if they're 4 0, you'll see a lot of Harbaugh's back, like all over ESPN. And uh, we don't necessarily want to see that because, for a lot of reasons, one of which is that we think it's just going to jinx the team. But anyway, critical aspects on offense and defense. So I thought about this a lot, and I think deep passing game and interior defensive line play are really good picks. I would add a dimension to the deep passing game thing, which I think is a no brainer. Michigan probably has gone deep less and less effectively than any program with like credible playoff ambitions over the last few years which is a, one of the serious problems with the program so yes but i think it's it's more about complexity and dynamism 
in the passing game. Because what Michigan fails to do is when Michigan has guys like, let's say this year, A.J. Hanning and Blake Corum, when those guys are on the field, they have truly elite athleticism. And the defense should be fearing them. The defense should be wrong-footed by them. The defense should have to ask, is Corum going to run a wheel route? Or is he going to, you know, motion out wide? What is Henning going to do out of the slot? We need to see that for Michigan. I want to see enough dynamism that defenses are actually having to ask questions about this offense and not just standing there while, like, the quarterbacks, (laughs) two quarterbacks run around the field and then, you know, have to call a timeout and get sacked for five yards. Not that we've seen anything like that ever. <laughs> right. That's never happened. Uh, on defense, I think it's uh, – I actually think that covering guys is a little bit more important to this team than line play just because I think there's, there are more questions about the cornerbacks than about the defensive line. But it's close. I think interior DL play is always crucial, and that may well be the biggest question. Yeah, there are a lot of places we can go. I, I would say I, – I absolutely agree with you that I, I think just a uh... – a rather basic level of coverage ability is maybe the most critical aspect, at least in terms of making significant strides from what we saw last season. And I just have more faith in both the depth and talent on the defensive line, even though that has been questioned somewhat. I I, I do think that has been, especially with Michigan going to a 3-4 and having a couple legitimately nose tackle size guys now, maybe a, a a little bit more of a worry or at least a more prominent preseason worry compared to uh, especially the secondary. And also, I mean, linebackers are a worry. We, we covered this ground last week when, when the draft went uh, horribly awry. <laughs> <laughs> or did it go really well? Maybe. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it, it depends on uh, which Twitter polls and, uh, and, and whatnot that you follow. But uh, for those that missed it, uh, Connor may have won Dan's Twitter poll on who actually won the uh, roster draft <laughs> last week, uh, which was a pretty hilarious turn. I, I must admit, uh, I do not mind getting overruled as the expert when it when it's that funny. Yeah, I voted for uh, for Dan for the record, but congrats on your victory, Connor. Your three quarterback, three headed monster at QB really, uh, I think, was the the deciding factor. It, it did seem to make the difference. <laughs> They'll never see the Alan Bowman wheel route coming. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I both I do agree with you that uh, having a more dynamic offense is really important. I am going to take the again simpler answer and straightforward one, and just go with Michigan needs a baseline level of quarterback play. Yep, that's what I was going to go with as well. Just functional play at that position. And I I do think they can. I am a little worried about the Washington game, even though they're not the best team in the Pac-12 uh, that that could have come out to Ann Arbor by any means. But that is a traditionally very strong defensive program with NFL-level talent on defense that's coached by a defensive guy in Jimmy Lake who's been there coaching that defense for a while before he was the head coach. So I think, you know, that that just feels like it might be a matchup problem given our worries about Michigan's offense potentially not coming together especially at the start of the season so I I think three and one is something where if if they drop that game there's still going to be room to go they have Michigan bounces back from this and your only loss is a non-conference game to a decent Pac-12 opponent when you were still getting your feet under you 
I think there's going to be some willingness to overlook that and say this team made real strides, and I think that would be fair. I, I don't think you want things to come down to one one game in September. Uh, there are a lot of very good teams that uh, somewhat inexplicably blow games that time of year, teams that aren't as good as them. But at the same time, there is uh, less room for error for Harbaugh now than uh, there was even just last year. With that, we'll we'll move on to only only one more football question. Yo, uh, oh, can can I get in? Oh, on this? Alex, yeah, Alex, yeah. Get hey, yes. hey, still here. I had football opinions as well. Um, I know I'm mostly here to talk hoops, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been a longtime Michigan football fan, and uh, I definitely have some <laughs> takes. Fair. So, uh, yeah, what what do I think Michigan's record will be through four games this season? I, I'm on good vibes right now, so I'm going to go with four and zero. Oh. I think it's probably a 50-50 chance that they're going to lose one or more games in September. Uh, four home games, think that they should be able to take care of Rutgers. So yeah, the, the Washington game is probably going to be the pivot there. Um, the most critical aspect on offense and defense to make that happen. Uh, yeah, functional play at the quarterback position. It could be any of three guys, I think, legitimately have a chance at winning the job. But just a baseline of, of decent mistake-free play. Um, you know, can lead drives, you know, take a little bit of pressure off the running game. Um, that's what the offense needs the most to succeed. And then for defense, yeah, I mean, I would agree that the ability to cover receivers is going to be important for this year, obviously. But in terms of, like, getting off to a good start to the season, just having some coherence on that side of the ball, not blowing a bunch of assignments, it's going to be some new players, completely different defense, um, some co- coaching changes during the offseason. So, really just the ability to execute assignments and play relatively mistake-free football is what I'm hoping to see on defense. Do I think we'll see it? I'm not sure, but uh, that I think would be a, a prerequisite to success. I, I just realized we, we missed a, a critical aspect that was absolutely teed up for us, and that is having a safeties coach. That is going to be important. <laughs> yeah, I, Bob Shoop. Do we have Bob Stoop as our uh, secondaries coach now? I think so. Clink Scale is uh, the DB's coach, and then Ron Bellamy is safety's coach, technically, or something like that, I think. Yeah, I mean, as long as it's literally somebody, it's got to be an upgrade from last year. It, it yeah. is a physically <laughs> present human being, possibly even two of them paying attention to that that position, and they are full-time staff members of on, of the actual coaching staff. <laughs> At the facility, it's, believe it or not. It's, yeah. it's great stuff. Our next question comes from at Jeff Weir 2 Ace at all, what are your and others' thoughts on how much Ohio matters? This is uh, about recruiting. This isn't Bo Woody era and is Ohio the talent source it was. Also, it seems Michigan has more high-end talent based on OSU activity in Michigan, and keeping kids here is a quote-unquote win in the recruiting battle. Connor, I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, I mean, we did, we debated this a little bit in one of our group chats. Um, I disagree with the idea that Ohio has less top-end talent than Michigan. They actually have a lot that just all goes to Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Um Michigan, I mean, Michigan's doing surprisingly well, uh, probably better than people would have projected a few years ago. They're, 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 both states are kind of in the midst of good recruiting years right now, um, especially the upper end. But I think the key, what this comes down to is, Ace made this point once to me when I said that I'd rather see Michigan get kids out of like Florida and California, which I'm all in favor of. But the point that Ace made that I think remains salient is at some point, you do kind of have to start fighting Ohio State on all fronts. And one of those fronts is 
you got to make them work for those Ohio recruits and you got to steal some of those Ohio recruits. Um, because right now that's a good football state and they just all go to Ohio state. It's quite remarkable. If they don't, they go to Cincinnati or Kentucky. Um, the, those are just the guys that Ohio state doesn't want. Ohio state gets every kid they want out of Ohio. So what I want to see Michigan do is, you know, start to nab a few of them. We started to get there when Zach Harrison was a silent commit. You guys all know what team he actually starts for now. So I, I don't know. I think it's important to fight Ohio State all over the place and not be timid about that. That's my stance on recruiting Ohio. Yeah, I mean, you you, you got to make them work a little bit uh, on their home turf. And for as much as things have gone national in terms of programs' ability to recruit, college football is still a deeply regional sport. And generally, you're going to want some some ties to to the players you're recruiting and sometimes you can get it when a when a player grows up watching a team but a lot of times it, it, it's just growing up around people who care about or even hate you know it, it can work both ways the uh the programs that are generally right around the area so it it, it is it, i i think it's still a, a pretty important talent source and uh still does produce plenty of talent. Like Connor said, it's just pretty much all going to Ohio or in the case of when it doesn't, like Jackson Carmen, it's going to Clemson uh, or, you know, one of the legitimate playoff tier programs right now. Uh, Alex, do you have any thoughts on uh, the importance of bringing in Ohio? And uh, we haven't mentioned that like all of Michigan's Heisman winners are from Ohio. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the genesis of this question was an athletic article that had some, I guess, disparaging quotes about how Michigan's coaching staff has approached Ohio, which to that end, I think that is super concerning. Um, As far as competing with Ohio State for recruits, Zach Harrison was a battle that happened fairly recently that Michigan was in it and really did push for his commitment. Ultimately, he picked Ohio State, but you're not going to win a ton of those kids, unfortunately, against Ohio State uh, until you start being competitive on the field. Like Kids from Ohio who only remember Ohio State beating Michigan and not the other way around, if they're you know legit you know, top of the board for OSU, Michigan realistically is not going to compete for many of those guys. But yeah, that second tier of prospects where, you know, Ohio State's filling out their class, you know, with five stars from all over the country, Texas, Washington, um, Michigan can compete against, say, Kentucky. Hiring Clink Scale was a, a good effort in that regard. And yeah, I think, you know, you, you do need kids from the Midwest and Ohio does produce the most talent in the Midwest. So you can't really ignore the state entirely. Yeah. And, and to work up to being able to recruit that top tier talent, you need to build relationships with uh, coaches and players uh, at high school programs. And you do that by recruiting at that school, even if you're not necessarily getting the top kid from that school. So I, I, I think Yes, this this the genesis of this question very much was uh, an article in the Athletic uh, by Bill Landis, who does an excellent job covering Ohio State for them. And the the anonymous he had, I believe, eight coaches from Ohio high schools speaking anonymously, but on the record. And it was if if you are a Michigan fan, it was concerning how it seemed like Michigan right now is 
just largely absent from that picture for a lot of these coaches. And I, I don't think that's, you know, there, there'll be people who will say, oh, well, of course, like these are high school coaches from Ohio. They don't like Michigan and it's in their interest to disparage Michigan. I, I don't necessarily agree with that because these are high school football coaches who want to see their kids get division one scholarships. And there are only so many of those. Uh, it is in their best interest for Michigan to be recruiting their players. And they want that, uh, you know, maybe there might be a weird exception at, at a school or two, but in general, uh, coaches are very happy to see players pull in, in Michigan scholarship offers. So uh, to have the amount of coaches that were expressing that they didn't feel Michigan was doing enough. Uh, I think that's something that, the staff needs to turn around. And speaking of turning things around, we're moving on to basketball. So this last question came in via email from Matt. The question regards point guard development. He says, it strikes me as interesting that Juwan Howard keeps going to the transfer market for starting point guards. Do you take that as a worrying long-term sign as far as his slash his staff's ability to develop point guards? And he adds that obviously nothing about his tenure is truly worrying. He's doing an amazing job. He says, I know Beeline system was notoriously difficult for young point guards to pick up. Are we still dealing with some sort of aftermath from that? It also seems like the quick cooling on Zeb Jackson's potential could be part of this trend. Do you think Juwan will rely on experienced transfer point guards? Do you expect this to stabilize with incoming recruits? Players at basically all of the front court positions have developed so quickly. Am I just spoiled by that? Look forward to hearing your thoughts on this, and thanks. Cheers, Matt. Thank you for that uh, detailed question, Matt. I actually had to edit that down a little bit. I'm going to let Alex uh, give his thoughts on this one first. Yeah, so I think a big part of it is just the roster that he inherited, uh, coupled with the David DeJulius transfer. Um, I think DeJulius could have won the job, and we potentially wouldn't have recruited Mike Smith in that case, but... uh, he decided to leave. I, I'm not concerned, frankly, by it. I think Michigan is going to continue to pursue players in the transfer portal to fill roster holes. So, like, for example, next season could be that Hunter Dickinson and Musa Giabate and Brandon Johns are all gone, and we could have to turn to the transfer portal for uh, help there. But, yeah, I you know, Michigan – Part of it is is just the roster. I think um, Zeb Jackson was a player that committed to Beeline. Jawan honored that commitment. Frankie Collins, I don't know that he is going to really be a threat to start this year, but could develop into a starting point guard down the line. 2022 commit Doug McDaniel is another developmental prospect in that regard. I don't think Jawan will necessarily continue taking a grad transfer point guard every year, but I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised to see it continue into the future and really at any other position. I'd be I'd be pretty surprised if Juwan Howard is planning on having a grad transfer start at point guard every season. He he's still recruiting point guards. He's recruiting some high level point guards in addition to uh, you know even by Michigan's current recruiting standards in addition to the pretty solid four stars that he has brought in so far and. It's a position where, you know, we're, we're in a new era of college basketball where the transfer market is always going to be pretty active, especially with up transfers from mid-major schools. And we are seeing that a lot of those guys are legitimate Big Ten talents. Some of them are legitimate NBA talents. Uh, that might very well be the case with Devontae Jones this year. 
So I'd, I'd be worried if it was something where it seemed like, you know, Michigan couldn't even keep young point guards on the roster. But, you know, DeJulius transferred away from a coach who didn't recruit him uh, after not getting not being guaranteed a starting job. And after that, Michigan has held things together quite well in terms of uh, keeping roster continuity. Yeah, before we move on to, I think it's worth noting that uh, the staff seems to have done a pretty good job of coaching ball screen offense um, and developing, you know, point guard play among, you know, say, say Mike Smith, for example, he was a high volume scorer at Columbia, but he really sharpened his game to be a distributing point guard at Michigan. Um, you know, Xavier Simpson, really strong ball screen game as well. You saw it even a little bit with Franz Wagner um, creating with the ball in his hands. So I don't think that there's any reason why the staff couldn't say, you know, develop at Zed Jackson or uh, Frankie Collins into a, an upperclassman starter. But I think just as the roster continues to transition from Beeline to Howard, they're, you know, I think, you know, with uh, Smith and Jones, they filled gaps that arose, you know, after Xavier Simpson left. Yeah, this will be more, things should be a little bit more consistent going forward, although there will always be a certain amount of transfer action. I don't expect it to always be at the point guard position. Yeah, and there has been a lot of transfer action in college basketball in general this year, but Michigan brings back pretty much its entire roster from last year, which is definitely an an anomaly, um, you know, aside from the players who, you know, lost their eligibility or decided to go pro. Absolutely. And uh, to your point about development with Howard Isley on staff, uh, for as long as he's on there, I imagine Michigan is going to be able to develop uh, some lead ball handlers who can handle the ball screen because uh, that dude was an NBA league guard. And so far, Michigan has been quite good at running ball screens under Juwan Howard. And I think Howard Isley likely has a fair amount to do with that from the point guard end of things. Yeah, and just from the you know mentality side of things where you are kind of quarterbacking the offense and you know, being a floor general out there, I, you know, Howard Isley can coach that kind of intangible leadership as well. All right. We are going to finish this off really quick with our vibes of the week. We didn't do this for the second podcast of last week because that seemed like an excessive number of vibes. But um, we do want to, you know, turn things around after after how, how things went last week. So for for those that missed it last week in our first episode, Rach is picking a vibe, and it's either going to be good or it's going to be bad. And at the end of it, we're going to determine if it's a good vibe week or a bad vibe week. It's sometimes going to have to do with Michigan sports, and sometimes it's not. But uh, I think I only know two of ours, and uh, they actually do have to do with Michigan this week. Uh, Connor, I will start with you. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm going to duck in here with a good vibe. You'll know it's a bad week when I... Mr. Sunny Vibes go for a bad one. Um, <laughs> this was almost a week ago, so probably a lot of people, a lot of Michigan fans who are aware of Twitter are aware of this. But uh, you, if you haven't seen it yet, you've got to see on July 7th, Jabril Peppers, a name known to Michigan fans, tweeted, Why do I settle for women that force me to pick up the pieces? And uh, a lot of hay was made of this because it is, you know, we all, we all love to see our favorite untouchable immortal athletes humanized uh, as Jabril was doing for himself there. And Charles Woodson, a name you may also have heard, responded, young fella, you groan, cut that shit out. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> which I think is like kind of double-edged, right? Because it's like on the one hand, I, I feel like Charles Woodson is saying, you're grown, you're too old to be dealing with women who don't respect you, but he might also be saying, don't tweet like that. Yes. <laughs> I think kind of both is what he's saying there. And there's just something very enjoyable about watching two Michigan legends, great players from different eras, uh, both acting like human beings and pal- palling around online, and it's quite funny. I think that's a very positive vibe. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed that interaction. I, you know, nobody wants to see a dude who's down bad. So, uh, you know, hopefully Peppers gets uh, <laughs> that part of his life turned around. But I, I'm happy to see that he's got uh, Charles Woodson giving some, like, good fatherly advice. And I, I do agree that he he probably left that ambiguous for a reason in, in terms of the way that it could be interpreted. Alex, uh, what is your vibe of the week? So I kind of wanted to tie my vibe of the week into um, something that you posted in the uh, Bucket Problem newsletter. You know, photos of a sunny walk on a beautiful fall Saturday to the stadium in Ann Arbor. Uh, You had noted that those streets looked, you know, unfortunately empty as if it were just a normal day. But my vibe of the week is the good vibe of anticipating Um, the ability to return to Ann Arbor this year after missing out on in-person football last year. You know, obviously the world has gone through a a super tough time with the the COVID pandemic, but for those of us who are fortunate enough to be vaccinated here in the U.S., um, life can start to get back to normal in some ways. Um, I actually went to my first live sporting event over the 4th of July. And yeah, even if, you know, the outlook on the field isn't great, um, I am excited to able to return to Ann Arbor because last year was the first year that I haven't gone to a game since I was probably five or six years old. So the ability to reunite with friends and family and uh, cheer on the maize and blue, uh, thinking about that as we're, you know, less than two months away from the start of the season, that's a, it's a good vibe for me. I'm glad you went in that direction and locked into good vibes week because I'm going in the opposite direction. Oh, my my vibe of the week, I know, I know. I've had a good week, too, but I just, I couldn't get past this, and also I'm going to do a shameless promo here. My vibe is my email inbox. It's it's bad because it is full of sad emails from Michigan football about how I should be buying, like, dozens of tickets or, you know, bringing my whole family to three games for, uh you know, a discounted price, but not actually that discounted if you're taking the what is this really worth equation into account. And it's just, it gives off such 2014 vibes. This Obviously, this is what I wrote about this week at www.thebucketproblem.com. Please go check it out if you haven't, because this podcast is free. It is separate from the newsletter, and some of you might not have seen it yet. So yeah, go do that. Uh, The newsletter, also free. So check it out. So I won't go too long on this, but yeah, the, the the ticket emails are just really bumming me out. Just please stop spamming me. Like it, it's feeling like not not only are the ticket emails sad, but it's it's annoying. I, I want it to stop, please. Yeah, they must have hired the same firm that uh, recommends sending a bunch of email blasts for uh, political candidates. It does. <laughs> it does feel like a desperate candidate reaching a fundraising deadline. Donate $50 by the end of the day or else Jim will lose to Ohio State again. Oh, man. (laughs) I I think we have to end the podcast pretty much 
precisely on that note, so I'm just going to say thank you to two Alexes, Alex Kirshner and Alex Cook. Also, obviously, thank you to Connor Southard and also Connor Hitchcock. We, we are thanking people in pairs this week, apparently. So please uh, go to www.thebucketproblem.com, subscribe to the newsletter and the pod, which is still not yet up on Apple Podcasts. I am, uh, you know, intending to get that done. But we'll go with that right now. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Follow at Bucket Problem on Twitter. Use the promo code BUCKETPROBLEM at homefieldapparel.com for 15% off your first order. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening this week.